All right, Dave. Um, as with the past few weeks, you'll be carrying this one too. I have fallen behind on research because of current events, but we have to keep putting these out because um, the study of history has to continue no matter what's going on in the world, right? <laughs> I know you've got your feet on three stools. You're doing a bit of a dance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but we've got 1915, and, and you've called this uh, Allied Disasters. So Not a good help. year for the Allies, or the Entente, if, if you want to Yeah, that's right. The Allies that. is World War II terminology, isn't it? Well, it becomes the Allies when all these other countries come in, like Italy and so on. At the beginning of the war, it's Russia, France, England versus Germany, Austria, Hungary. That's it. That's it. The yeah. Entente and the Central Powers. Yeah. But I think as of now, we can start talking about the Allies. The Allies versus Germany or something, maybe. Yeah. Certainly by the end of the war, they're calling themselves the Allies. Right. Except for the Americans. But the 1915 is not going their way right now. Oh, goodness, no. No. If you if you have an image of World War One with trenches and barbed wire, that's the Western Front in 1915. Uh, it's a it's complete deadlock. The, the realization begins to sink in. It's not going to be a short war after all. Uh, by this time, you have an unbroken line of trenches from the north from the english channel to switzerland in, in, in close to switzerland the, the trenches are carved out of the rock in the mountains in the soggy low country of flanders they're built up with sandbags you you just can't dig 10 feet deep in flanders you you end up with a pool so they dig a few feet down and then prop up sandbags in front of them the, is Go there ahead. a time? So I just wanted to say, like, we had that race to the coast mm -hmm. in the at the end of our Western uh, Front episode. And what what I don't remember, though, a specific battle or even a specific campaign where the realization that this is going to be trench warfare sinks in. Was there some specific charging of an entrenched position or some particularly counterproductive battle where one no, side or the other the, realized? In the, in the race to the sea, the Germans tried to turn the British flank at uh, Ypres, so yeah. the first battle of Ypres. And, and when that failed, both sides uh, dug in. Okay. And so, so it was that. It was, it was Ypres. Yeah. Ypres. Yeah. And, and then it just the failure to get around that position. Mm -hmm. And then Germany just said, OK, fine, we'll we'll dig we'll in, set up a defensive position in front of yours. Right. So the uh, the trenches actually had national characteristics. The Germans started using poured concrete from the very beginning, like we're going to be here for a while. While the British, their generals preferred to maintain an attack posture. And that meant that muddy ditches were good enough. We didn't want the troops getting too comfortable or, or, or begin to think that they're going to be there for very long. We mm. shall, of course, surge forward and capture the enemy trenches. <laughs> of course. Now, did the British officers do anything to take care of themselves? That was Oh, different? gosh, yeah. They were in oh. nice dugouts further back. 
And the high command occupied, you know, a French chateau six Hmm. to ten miles behind the front and set up a telephone link so that they could stay in touch with, you know, what's going on. And the trench system varied, too, depending on the terrain. So how hard it was to dig and, you know, you followed uh, the contours of hills and so on. But generally, there's a standard forward trench and it's dug in a zigzag pattern. If you've ever been to France or Belgium and seen some of the trenches that are still there, um, it, it, that comes as a bit of a surprise how, how much of a zigzag they're in. And that's for a really simple reason. If the enemy gets into your trench, you don't want him able to set up a machine gun and then fire several hundred yards down your trench and kill everybody in it. So if he climbs into your trench, he's going to have to come around a corner. And you can be waiting there with, obviously, rifles, but also hand grenades and all sorts of nasty surprises. So both sides did this. Uh, It also protects from shell blasts. So if a shell actually lands, they don't have roofs, right? So a a shell can actually land directly in your trench and kill 15 men. But this way it won't kill 50. They'll be protected by the, the zig in the trench. Uh, from your forward trench, you have a series of what are called saps that run forward, again, usually in, in a zigzag. And this is so that your men can actually move forward without climbing out of the trench. It gives them a jumping off point if we're going to launch an attack. And then behind your first trench are approach trenches so that men can reach the forward positions without being exposed to gunfire or shell fire. And then behind those, you have support trenches, and those are communicated, or sorry, connected by communication trenches. And then you have storage trenches where you have extra supplies of, you know, food, ammunition, whatever. So it's not a single ditch that you dig. It ends up being a whole complex of trenches. And that's just the first line. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been reading a lot and seeing a lot about this with the Russia-Ukraine war so they have uh i guess they didn't have these so-called dragon's teeth right that was that's a newer thing because so they have these dragon's teeth which i guess are concrete mm-hmm. uh pyramids which are make it impossible to drive a tank An- over. anti-tank obstacles yeah yeah anti-tank obstacles and then they have mine fields mm-hmm. did we have mine fields yet we have mines. I don't think they had them in sufficient quantities to do to big do field. fields, but there are a few specific examples where, oh, they had the mined. Nice. Yeah. So you have mines, uh, trenches, dragons, uh, teeth, and, and specific ditches. Uh, all, which, so, it, I mean, it looks, when you look at like photos of it, it looks a little bit like the World War One trench network, but. Right. Um, but of course, there's new twists, and there's presum- there's drones flying over and other kinds of things. Yeah, and there's a couple of differences. One, <clears throat> sorry, one of them is the sheer quantity of ammunition that was fired. Yeah, uh, they don't have it nowadays. Yeah. Back then, they fired literally oh. million, millions of shells. Oh, interesting. Oh no, it's the yeah. opposite. Oh no, no. World War One, they fired millions of shells. Right, but each shell, I guess, is less explosive. Okay, less explosive than the missiles that and, and possibly the drones that you're using. But you have some pretty heavy artillery that's leaving behind mm. craters. Right. You know, you, Especially you, in this muddy uh, yeah. terrain. 
Yeah, so you obliterate a trench completely. Well, that's fine. The men will just shelter on the lip of the crater you've just created, right? right? And it, it gives a moon landscape that's incredibly hard to traverse. So is there a tr- is it a single tr- so how does it work is there a trench and then there's another trench behind it and then there's another trench behind that or sure much? and they're and they're connected by communication trenches okay. and then you don't stop there you you go half a mile or a mile back and dig a second line and this is all I mean if man uh, crudely to put it really crudely this is all because of machine guns <sighs> and heavy artillery those are the those are the weapons that dominate the battlefield. Actually, there's a defensive weapon that dominates too, and that's barbed wire. That might be one other difference that I don't know how much barbed wire they're using in in Ukraine. Well, you wouldn't need it because if you are, you can run you over that, it with tanks. Yeah. Yeah. If you get that close, you have armor to to do that. Yeah. Right, and they didn't. So the the barbed wire is not a single barbed wire fence, right? We're talking about 10 to 15 to I, I read in one case 20 rows of posts with barbed wire connected to all of them and in and in a tangle right they're not keeping it neat it's just an incredible mess that's going to prevent anybody from getting through on foot if you want to attack you would go out the night before and cut lanes through your own barbed wire so that your men can can charge through and then one of the goals of bombardment is to blow up the enemy's barbed wire so that you can get through. Oh, it, yeah. It's just staggering how much it, it's and, going to become you a contest. Can, you to, can cut it. You can get close and cut it, but they're machine gunning you while you're doing that. So. Well, sure. Hazardous, hazardous task. Very, very. So despite these pretty obvious, <laughs> I think, significant New. changes... There's no change in strategy. The generals say, okay, now that we have these obstacles, we need more men. And training of new recruits concentrated on the bayonet. They, the generals still believe the bayonet is the decisive weapon. Uh, there's another reason. Sometimes you are recruiting these men in haste and you don't have time to teach them new tactics. So once they've learned to march and stab things with a bayonet off we go the uh, the the british territorial army that's turned into a professional army and all of kitchener's recruits they didn't get you know weeks and weeks of target practice with their rifles so they're not marksmen they're going to have to be pretty close to shoot something and if you're that close well use the bayonet cuz the germans right. won't won't like the bayonet uh many of the generals turned down machine guns they considered it a defensive weapon. So accepting machine guns would be an admission of failure. That's the psychology that, that we're dealing with here. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> back to that French uh, philosophy, right? Elan or whatever. Well, the offensive, yeah. You have to attack to win. Um, in the East, very different. Uh, the Western Railway Network basically ended where the battlefield began. And you had some pretty huge empty spaces. And they do not have a continuous trench line. You know, the front is almost 500 miles long. And in the empty spaces between the armies, you have 
cavalry wandering around in search of the enemy. Uh, what trenches they had were lightly held. And no man's land was not this, you know, lunar landscape of, of shell craters. They didn't have enough shells to, you know, fire everywhere. So between the lines, you had peasants grazing their cattle and tilling the land and, and so on. And if you lost an attack, you could push forward 10 miles, 50 miles. You could drive 50 miles if you had enough support. And then you ran out of steam because there are no railroads to bring up supplies. And bringing up supplies, you know, by horse and cart, you can't possibly get enough. So offensives tend to be uh, limited. But this is still where you can have a war of movement. The armies are just as big as in the West, but they're spread over four times the space. And there's another weird feature. The railways ran east-west, particularly the Russian. But there aren't that many north-south railway lines. There is a big Russian one, and I think Poltava is one of the big railway junctions. But that's way behind the lines. There also wasn't as much artillery as on the Western Front, and there weren't as many machine guns. The Russians were short of rifles. If you've heard World War II stories about not enough rifles for every man, personally, I think those are World War I stories that yes. have been recycled. Yes, yes, I think so too. I think so too. Russian industry was pretty... Yeah, and especially, Stunning. you know, every, everybody who hears this is probably thinking of that scene from Enemy at the Gate with yeah. uh, Jude Law and uh, and so on. And that that by that scene, that's Stalingrad. By that scene, there were no shortages of any. Well, at least not like material. that. Yeah, like go with him. If he gets shot, pick up his rifle. Okay, that's World War One. The Russians. It's quite were... an Im- It's quite an image for sure. It's quite a. It's quite an opening for a movie, but. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I don't but it's so. actually true of World War One, for sure. And they, shells uh, in Tuckman, I read a lot about shortages of shells on the Russian side. Every country in the war had a shell scandal in 1915. Right. Because as we mentioned before, they had lots and lots of weapons, but they used it all up in 1914. Yeah, and, and this is also. I mean, we're going to talk about this, I think, <laughs> next episode. But this is also leading to an immense economic transformation in terms not just of what economies and industries are doing but in terms of how people think about industry because they're getting to this point where they're saying the private enterprise is not not doing the job and we have to incorporate economic planning which oh, is, I know. yeah government yeah. and industry imagine government involvement would make the economy more efficient yeah, and and just by way of by way of emergency, they're having to do this instead of all all this time they've been claiming that the market is the only way and the most efficient and everything, and suddenly yeah, not in, all planning because they don't want to lose the war. Yeah, yeah, not in an emergency. Yeah, yeah, the Russians were seriously short of rifles. Uh, the men who did have rifles seldom had more than twenty rounds of ammunition. And many of the Austrian rifles were still single-shot weapons. So the, oh, like uh, not front-loading, but but still breech-loading. Yeah, but you shoot, then you have to reload instead of you know slamming in a magazine and firing seven shots or however many in, in a row. Yeah. So yeah, the Eastern Front's going to be very different. So 
allied strategy, you're right. The French are still uh, committed to the offensive, and they seem to be hypnotized by the fact that <clears throat> national territory is in enemy hands, you know, so it's our sacred duty that we have to recover this territory. And the generals and politicians thought that there would be a, a revolt in public opinion if they adopted a defensive strategy. Of course, they, they shared this feeling that we have to attack. So we must launch new offensives. Well, the lessons of 1914 would seem to suggest that the defensive is more efficient. And if the Germans are going on the defensive in their concrete trenches, hmm, the British went along with the French. Uh, Kitchener had his doubts. There's a few things he said I found very interesting. Uh, he he compared the, the German trench lines there to a fortress <clears throat> that you can't assault head on and you can't outflank it. But despite those doubts, he wanted to be a good ally, and that meant supporting the nominal commander-in-chief, General Joffre. Uh, partly, <clears throat> it's embarrassment, because the British contribution at this point is still very small. It's the French who are bearing the brunt yeah, of the war in, the, in the West by far. And partly, it's also Kitchener seems to have understood that eventually British forces would be larger. And on that day, Kitchener imagined that he would be in command, and he hoped that the French would accept his orders. Oh, overall command. Oh yeah. Oh wow. <coughs> oh yeah. They're in. The British are in the uh, in the process of raising uh, an enormous, enormous oh. volunteer army. More more on that in the next episode. But yeah. yeah, it'll be our turn to be in charge, and then we'll expect you to cooperate as we are cooperating now. And. They also felt that they would need to launch offensives when the Russians were under pressure in the east. So that grand strategy of 1914 has been reversed. Instead of Russia, you know, rushing to attack to help France, well, we just saw the Russians get trashed at, at Tannenberg and then again at the end of 1914. So if that starts again, we might have to launch an offensive to take the pressure off them. But that's... <clears throat> That's not the entire British strategy. They they go to their traditional time-honored colonial ambitions. They're Taking. looking they're looking for back doors. Yeah. Right? Somewhere outside of the Western Front where we can make some gains. And that makes the French uh suspicious and jealous. Their attitude is I see, you're gonna let us fight and die on the Western Front while you go and grab German colonies in Africa and elsewhere. So the British had to reassure their ally, don't worry, we're committed to offensives too, you know, we'll we'll participate. And meanwhile, the the debate over strategy went on. Uh, Some generals and politicians said, you cannot win in the West by assaulting trench lines. And others answered, you will not win the war anywhere else. So and armor is not really ad- invented yet, like battlefield armor, like uh, tanks, armored personnel carriers. No, but it's fair enough to give a little spoiler that they're coming. Yeah, I'm just, you know, the, the this, <laughs> this idea that you cannot win in the West by assaulting trench lines is basically like... Um, 
<clears throat> I don't know if I showed it to you when you were in grade 10, but I used to have a, some great footage uh, of the British preparing a, a weapon to cross no man's land. It was uh, an armored wheelbarrow. Oh, no, I don't. Yeah, maybe I'll so, use that as the maybe I'll use that as the photo for this. For this episode. Yeah, it, it's British soldiers pushing, basically, uh, an, a a plate of armor in, in front of them. It's got eye slits, and and they're and some of them are like on their knees, crawling with this plate in front of them. It, it's absolutely ridiculous looking, but they yeah they did have that idea. Re- research is going on, mm-hmm. but in the meantime. The British are looking for somewhere else that we can fight. And only a handful of people saw the future more clearly. The Germans have millions of soldiers. Millions. The only way that we're going to defeat them is if we raise millions of soldiers. So not only in in, in the industrial sense, but we're headed for total war with using like every man we have. Wait, Dave, I I found one called on Reddit called a one man tank. So is it one guy (laughs) and then he's pushing it along? Yeah, there's no engine. He's got wheels. Yeah. I wonder if that would work. So if you get hit by a rifle shot wearing that, you're you're you're, you'll be okay. Presumably you're safe. Just don't turn sideways because the sniper can can pick you up. And and uh, don't run into mud or a yeah. shell crater. And uh, I don't know how you get across a trench with that, but yeah. But this is a this is a tank. But this is the first tank, I think we could say. Yeah, I don't know if they were actually used on the battlefield. Maybe they just. It looks, tried. This photo looks like it's. This photo looks like it's on the <clears> battlefield. It doesn't look like like I don't know. Maybe they photoshopped it, but <laughs> they probably did photoshop it. Now that I. Now that I see it, it looks the background doesn't look appropriate to the to the picture of the tank. OK, sorry, please continue. <laughs> no, once you see them, it, it, it is pretty funny. It changes you, you know. <laughs> OK. Um, OK, so going on with the war will be over by Christmas. There were still plenty of uh, generals and politicians who thought that the war could be won in 1915. If only <clears throat> they could return to open movement on the Western Front. Uh, They are encouraged by the German adoption of trench warfare because that's an admission of weakness. All we need to do is punch a hole in the German line and then we can pour men through and, you know, exploit their flanks and turn their flanks. This is something that's going to go on for a couple of years. This idea that you can break through the enemy trenches and then pour your cavalry in there and race through and, and have a an enormous breakthrough. It, it's an illusory idea, but they stick to it for the longest time. German strategy uh, has also changed. Obviously, the Schlieffen plan failed, but some of his main ideas, for example, he completely repudiated frontal attacks, and that's still doctrine for the Germans. They're going to look for a flank. Falkenhayn's looking at the Western Front. There are no flanks. So he now briefly came around to agree with Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Maybe we can reverse Schlieffen and get a decision, a decisive victory in the East. And we might have to do it in the East if we're going to save the Austro-Hungarian army. Because if we leave them alone against the Russians, they're doomed. 
maybe Russia is the power that could be knocked out of the war or, or pushed back far enough that they would no longer be a threat. And if Russia is defeated, France and Britain might have to accept a compromise peace. So the Germans changed their strategy. Defense in the West, offense in the East. But under Falkenhayn's control, he's not letting Hindenburg and Ludendorff run wild. Uh, the benefits of this strategy, it won't require as many troops as they have in the West because of the tactical clumsiness and ineptitude of the Russian commanders. So by seriously underestimating or, or correctly estimating their opponents, the Germans think they can win a victory with fewer men. The Austrians are really no longer capable of offensive operations. 1914 took the starch out of them in, in a big, big way. But they can stand on the defensive, especially if, if they have German support. So any offensive in the east is going to have to be carried out by the Germans. Russian strategy in the meantime, uh, Grand Duke Nicholas, the Tsar's uncle, he didn't share his plans with Joffre. There's really little communication between the French and the Russians. Uh, the Germans had already dropped some indirect hints that they might be willing to make peace based on the status quo. The status quo means Germany occupies Poland. So Russia, if you're willing to give up Poland, the Germans you know, might be willing to make peace with you. Uh, Tsar Nicholas did not respond to these overtures. We've, we've already described him. He's a, a weak man, but a stubborn man, yeah. usually a fatal combination. Uh, he figured that anything less than victory would so seriously shake his prestige, so weaken his authority that it would be just like 1905 all over again. If you, so if he had given up Poland in 1915, maybe that whole, maybe the whole war would have been, well, then Germany would have won the war, right? I guess Germany would have won. Yeah, see, at, at this stage, the Germans are willing to make a compromise peace, but a compromise where they get to keep at least a big chunk of what they've won so far. And the other countries aren't going to accept that. <clears throat> it's like a poker game. They're down and they want to win their money back. Yeah. And then all of your money as well, because we need that to pay for the war already. But yeah, if you if you saw or heard our episode on the Russo-Japanese War, which led to the revolution of 1905, the, the Tsarist got experience of what it means to lose a war in humiliating fashion. He, he doesn't want to have to concede another constitution or a real constitution, and he doesn't want to face another revolution. Uh, Taylor puts it this way. So Russia drifted on, incapable of winning the war, still more unable to escape from it. It's funny that decisions made to try to prevent a revolution led to a revolution. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the war went on uh, in early 1915. The Russians were still battering away at the Austro-Hungarians. In March, they captured the great fortress of Chemisil, along with 100,000 prisoners. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the thing, right? Like, this is one of the one of the books I was reading about the Russian front or the Eastern Front of World War One is you everybody judges Russia's performance by how they did against the Germans, but nobody did 
very well against the Germans, and Russia did fine against the Austro-Hungarians in the war. Oh, had the Germans not been involved, it would have been a very short war. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In France, uh, Joffre was planning a big offensive in May. But the British, and their general is still Sir John French, the British moved first. Uh, French and one of his corps commanders, Sir Douglas Haig, knew that Kitchener was considering other options. He's been talking about, you know, another opening another front or finding a back door. And that would lead to troops and resources being directed to a new army, not theirs, but a success on the Western Front in Flanders would restore the British expeditionary force to its rightful position, you know, first priority, we would get all the recruits and so on. <clears throat> so French and Haig chose to target a German salient, the little bulge in the line, around the village of Neuve-Chapelle. It was uh, lightly defended. Uh, there were only six German companies there with 12 machine guns between them. They only had uh, shallow sandbag breastworks because the ground was too waterlogged for a proper a trench. So breastworks would be <clears throat> chest high. So you stand in the trench and you can literally put your rifle on top of the sandbags and see over it. Of course, that means your head is exposed, but you just can't dig a deeper trench. So Haig committed 48 battalions of infantry, supported by 60 batteries of field artillery, plus 120 heavy siege guns. The preliminary bombardment was short. And Taylor says that's just because the British didn't have enough shells. But it meant that the Germans were caught off guard by how quickly the infantry came across. So normally you would bombard for a long time, then you would stop, and then the infantry would come. You don't want to blow up your own infantry with your own artillery. Right, and on the eastern front, some battles the Germans had won just by bombarding, right? The, the Russians retreated before even the infantry showed up. Well, yeah, because they don't have much cover, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the Germans were, were caught by surprise. In several places, the attackers broke through into open country, like you're behind the German trenches. This is something that was not to be repeated for two and a half years. But there was no open warfare that came out of it. The, the British failed to exploit that opening. Uh, Alan Clark blames uh, hesitant leadership, a cumbersome chain of command, and poor communications. So the guys that have broken through in order to tell somebody in, you know, higher up, have to send a runner back. And then he has to find a junior officer who has to go find a more senior officer who has to go, you know. So the troops who had broken through stopped at night. <clears throat> they thought that they were facing the second German line. They had no idea there was no second line. The only thing in front of them was an improvised position with two companies of, of sharpshooters. The Germans had raced them in on bicycles in the early hours of the morning. On the second day, the entire British army was held up by a handful of machine guns. British artillery couldn't do anything. They'd run out of ammunition. Haig uh, still had a numerical advantage. He had a seven to one advantage in troops in this area. So he ordered the attack to continue and I quote, regardless of loss. Taylor says loss was what he got. So just attacking 
a machine gun position. Yeah, and let's run across this open field while the Germans fire machine gun bullets at us. That's like that's like Kitchener at Omdurrahman or something. Yeah, roles reversed. Yeah. Yeah. So both sides drew conclusions from the Battle of Neuve Chapelle. The Germans saw that the British troops were very brave, but that their tactics were very clumsy. So they got busy building deeper concrete shelters and more pillboxes. The British conclusion from Neuve Chapelle was it is possible to seize a part of the enemy line with relatively little loss. And Joffre came to the same conclusion. So they started gearing up for major offensives uh, and we're going to try the same trick again. The Germans were planning a, a more major offensive in the east and they were intending to use a new weapon which had not been uh, used yet. And the commanders who were going to use this new weapon insisted that it be tested under actual battle conditions. So to avoid tipping off the Russians, they decided to run this battle test in the West. If you haven't guessed, the new weapon was poison gas. So they chose a... a wow. So uh, which which lab came up with this uh, innovation? Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them came out of uh, uh, fertilizer applications. To uh, tell you the yeah, truth, the Haber Bosch, Haber Bosch process. Right? So this poison gas was mustard gas. Uh, there are some more deadlier gases that are coming later on. And in case, and in, in case it makes the Germans sound uh, particularly evil, uh, the British and French both had their own poison gas. They just hadn't decided whether to use it or not. Yeah, and I mean, Church, there's a famous quote from Churchill who used it in the Middle East, and he said, I don't believe in the use of uh, poison gas except against certain tribes or something. Yeah, yeah. So to they, they chose a, a quiet sector of the Ypres salient, so same place. This one was held by French colonial troops. And I had to look it up. It took me a, a while because many of the sources simply say French colonial troops. Is it too much trouble to find out that they were Algerians? I, I don't know why that is left you know, blank. So two French divisions were actually in the line between the British and Belgian armies. This is really dumb. <clears throat> They're very far from their own, you know, other French troops, they're going to feel alone. Sure, we got allies on either side, but do you trust the Belgians or the British? So the gas, the technology then uh, worked like this. The gas was stored in canisters and they had valves. So a bit like, you know, your outdoor uh, water tap. So you turn the valve on the canister and the gas leaks out. So you have to wait for a wind going in the correct uh, direction. And the Germans had that, uh, a gentle wind, and it carried a, cl a cloud of this uh, chlorine gas into the French lines. And understandably enough, you know, many of the troops panicked. They didn't know what it was. <coughs> Men started choking. And many of them fled. 
And the ones who didn't, well, many of them died. So the Germans, <laughs> the Germans broke through the Algerian lines. Uh, they, their men were equipped with gas masks, rather rudimentary, but still gas masks. And the local German commander, he saw, I got a major breakthrough here. I'm, I'm going to improvise and, and extend my success. So he called up more troops. But some of the soldiers, even the ones given gas masks, didn't trust their masks. Dave, the, the story of mustard gas is actually incredible. Um, it, so British scientist Frederick Guthrie synthesizes it in 1860. Uh, Albert Neiman, a German uh, chemist, um, repeats the reaction also in 1860. Um, in, eight, in 1913... Or in 1886, a German chemist um, uses it to kill a bunch of rabbits. Oh, uh, Victor okay. Meyer is his name. He kills a bunch of uh, rabbits with it, so he knows it's fatal. Then there's an English chemist in 1913. 1913 English chemist, Hans Thatcher Clark, uh, known for the Eschweiler-Clark reaction, um, replace, you know, it does some innovation while working with Emil Fischer in Berlin, who's a 1902 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for <laughs> Fischer esterification. So, uh, British English chemist Hans Thatcher Clark and Emil Fischer working together in Berlin. Uh, Clark is hospitalized for two months for burns after one of his flasks broke. Uh, Fisher's report on this accident to the Gem German Chemical Society sent the German Empire on the road to chemical weapons. This is all Wikipedia. I didn't <clears throat> follow it up, but the the notion that this is a joint English-German scientific innovation from two years before it's used on the battlefield is a bit mind-blowing to me. Okay, so... It doesn't mention that they saw a military application right away. Uh, well, or, yeah, or, 1913. Well, right away from apparent. This is the the lore in Wikipedia is that this German, I mean, the English one chemist was injured by it. Uh, Fisher reported it to the authorities, and the authorities thought, "Oh, cool, let's let's make a weapon." Well, but how do you deliver it? So the canisters depend on a wind, and even then, mm. and then how do you protect your own men? So you have to develop gas masks. Yeah. I I could see you, you considering, you know, killing rats with it. Yeah, once the war starts, they start looking for applications, and boy, they they found it. Yeah, so the the Germans were afraid to advance into the gas. Uh, they didn't have enough reserves behind them to exploit an incredible opportunity because the gap in the line was five miles wide. So troops had to be allied troops had to be found to go in and block, you know, block up this hole and stop the Germans from turning the flanks. <clears throat> so, uh, Canadian and British troops were sent into a place called Saint Julien to block the German advance. And for whatever reason, the Canadians in particular refused to retreat. Right. I think it would be a fairly sensible and logical thing to, you know, run away from poison gas. Uh, 
<clears throat> I don't know if if their courage was greater than their ignorance or <laughs> in or, grade twelve we had to read a novel. Uh, Timothy Findlay. Timothy Findlay, The Wars, I think it was called. Yep. And I think this battle is in it, right? Well, it's yeah. a yeah, it's a pretty big battle in Canadian history. It's almost the first engagement for Canadians in World War One, and it's this. You know, it's a pretty horrific thing. Uh, some there were plenty of far, farm boys among the uh, the troops, and they they recognized by the smell uh, they made a guess at the chemical constitution and they knew it was uh an acid and how do you counteract an acid you need base base mm -hmm. so they said uh urinate on your handkerchief and tie it over your face yeah and they improvised gas masks and they stayed and fought <clears throat> and the Germans continued to attack, at least the ones that trusted their masks, and the Canadians stayed in and fought. Uh, after the battle, after the war, uh, the Belgian government uh, erected a monument at Saint-Julien, uh, a column topped by the figure of a Canadian soldier uh, with his head bowed uh, over his rifle, uh, and the inscription on the monument says, this column marks the battlefield where 18,000 Canadians on the British left withstood the first German gas attacks from the 22nd to 24th of April, 1915. 2,000 fell and lie buried nearby. So they didn't just stay for a couple of hours. I mean, they literally stayed for days and nights uh, in, in a cloud of poison gas. They were also being shelled uh, with with regular shells, but also poison gas shells. So the Germans had already found a way to make poison gas shells. That's definitely an industry I would not want to work in. Uh, but yeah, they, they had those. What the column doesn't mention is that thousands more of these Canadian soldiers had to be sent home uh, wounded, uh, by wounded, I mean invalid for life. Uh, mustard gas burns, and it particularly burns the most delicate tissues, like your eyes. So thousands were blinded. And if you breathe in the gas, it burns the delicate tissues in your lungs. Now, if you've ever had a an injury like a bad sunburn or a scrape the body responds to that sort of damage by pumping fluid to the affected area that's why your cuts scab over that that's why your you know bad sunburn can turn into you know blisters uh, that's how the body protects itself so if your lungs are basically burning the body plump pumps fluid into the lungs and those guys choked and drowned, basically. essentially drowned on dry land. Yeah. So the war is getting ugly already. Uh, Sir John French, the British commander, responded to that attack with a series of, I quote, extravagant, ill-managed and costly attacks. 
British soldiers were told to protect themselves from poison gas by dipping their handkerchiefs in a solution of water and boric acid. Would that work? <laughs> but why not take some more serious measures like legit gas masks? Oh, yeah, but that's going to take you know months. The attacks uh, that French organized achieved little, I quote, except the destruction of two Indian brigades. Which is maybe, I don't know, maybe they do see that as an achievement. Who knows? Oh, I mean, well. I do think there's a cavalier. I don't know. I don't know if you if you see it, but I, I, I am seeing a little bit more cavalier throwing away of uh, lives when it's colonial troops it would make sense if it was the case whether it is whether it was the case or not there's definitely a hierarchy it's it's not as simple as white and non-white because Mm -hmm. you're right the colonial troops are considered Mm ill-trained and undisciplined Mm -hmm. so when the canadians joined up they expected to be put on a ship like the next day and and sent to europe to fight the germans like just give me a rifle i'm good to go no 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 you have to go to training camp. You have to learn how to march. You have to learn how to salute. You have to learn how to stab things with a bayonet. And you have to stand at attention when your British officers are speaking to you. And you have to show them deference and respect. Okay, well, we all know about the British class system. Right. Canadians didn't have that. Yeah, they didn't. Neither did you know, New Zealanders or Australians. They have a sort of a, a chummy attitude with their officers, like, hey, what's yeah. up? And that's not going to fly. Uh, I was saving the idea of discipline and punishments for later, but let's just say the British had a whole range of punishments for, for their disrespectful, own. So- their own guys, yeah. especially the colonials. So, yes, if we have an offensive that could be particularly risky, we can send in the Irish or, well, we might need them later. Okay, we can use the Canadians or the Indians or yeah obviously those guys are more expendable at least partially because the casualty lists won't be published in britain so when you lose an entire unit of guys from newcastle it creates a bit of a depression in northern england you know because we knew all those guys whereas colonials yeah not not worth as much although there was one british general who who protested against the waste of men This was the second uh, Corps commander, Sir Horace Smith Dorian. He was the first and essentially the last senior British commander who protested against repeated frontal assaults. He said, you are simply throwing away men's lives. So, of course, uh, he was fired. Uh, and this had consequences. Um, now, now Smith Dorian had suggested a limited withdrawal from the Ypres salient. We we are occupying a piece of strategically worthless low ground that juts into the German lines, which means there's German artillery on practically three sides of us. So why don't we just abandon this worthless piece of ground, shorten the line, and have some better defensive terrain? And they said, you're fired. So his successor, General Plummer, uh, carried out exactly the same withdrawal. <laughs> the Germans continued to attack uh, with gas, artillery, and infantry. 
the British lost about 60,000 men, the Germans 35 to 40,000 men. So th this battle or the battles, plural, of the second Ypres should have taught them more lessons. So soldiers out in the open are extremely vulnerable to accurate artillery fire and machine guns. So the only defense they have is to dig, dig fast and dig deep. But the commanders believed that they could succeed by the same old formula. We just need more men and more men. Uh, the French launched an, their own attack. Uh, General Ferdinand Foch attacked in Artois. He used over a thousand guns and howitzers in a six-day preliminary bombardment. He spent 2,155,862 oh. shells. Wow. I don't. I don't know who counted. Yeah, I mean, just uh, just for reference, I've been again. I mentioned the Russia-Ukraine war, and they're they're talking about production in all of NATO of thirty, forty thousand shells a month as being a really big deal. So, <laughs> if you're like that number is absolutely staggering. Those those shells would have lasted the first couple of days. Yeah, the, the battle lasted from May 3rd to June 18th. The French suffered over 100,000 casualties and the Germans about 75,000. So the next British offensive was aimed at the Aubert Ridge and it was timed to coincide with Joffre's offensive. Of course, they screwed that up. It ended up being delayed. Uh, this time, British artillery was weaker than at Neuve-Chapelle and the German defenses were considerably stronger so sorry, have, Dave, just, just sorry to interrupt but yeah so i was just looking at an article in like the media about the a, a north korean deal with russia uh to supply russia with shells and it said it's from september 2023 and it says russia fired between 10 to 11 million rounds last year in ukraine so that's probably the most active expenditure of shells since um world war ii yeah since world war ii and that's 10 million in a year and this is two million in one battle yeah so well yeah scale i i read some eyewitness accounts from german defenders so german soldiers who were at Aubert's ridge they were amazed because after the bombardment stopped and they you know, took up their frontline positions and got their machine guns ready. They saw a solid wall of khaki. The men side by side with bayonets fixed. So, of course, the first wave was exterminated by machine gun fire. Now the reserve troops who were supposed to exploit the breakthrough were crowded in the forward trenches. So they, too, were sent into the attack in the same place with the same results. Wow. Two days wow. later, the British had no shells left and not very many men either. Wow. And this is under F General French. Yeah. This is his idea. This is one of these so-called, what, what did they call it? Ambitious and ill-advised or something? Yeah, yeah. extravagant attacks. Yeah. Extravagant and ill-managed, yeah. Uh, then the news came from the Eastern Front, uh, 
there was a disaster in Poland. So eight German divisions had been transferred from France. Since they're going on the defensive, they can, you know, spare a few troops. And they were organized into a new army, the 11th, under Field Marshal von Mackensen. Russian intelligence failed to detect their presence. So between uh, Gorlice and Tarnov, there were only six Russian divisions. And those divisions had very little artillery and no reserves. Falkenhayn put Mackensen's whole army there with 1,500 guns and seven Austrian divisions to support them. And they achieved complete surprise, which <laughs> kind of blows yeah. my mind. How do you not notice them lining up, you know, eight new divisions and a thousand over a thousand guns right in front? Yeah. So how do they do this? They do it by spies? And uh, you have spies, you capture prisoners, but you have aircraft. Yeah. You fly over the enemy lines and say, hey, there's a lot more guys there than there were before. Right. And you take pictures. Uh, uh, Falkenhayn's offensive in Galicia had been delayed, but now the Russian right flank was torn open. The, the German divisions just poured through the gap and they kept going. Uh, that forced Russians who had not been attacked to retreat or, or else face being cut off. In a week, the Germans advanced 70 miles. In two weeks, they crossed the River San, which was a major obstacle. And within a month, they had recaptured the fortress of uh, Chemisel. So this is all happening in Austrian Galicia. Following that victory, <clears throat> on May 2nd, Falkenhayn finally allowed Ludendorff to attack from East Prussia. Uh, the Germans captured the vital rail junction at Bialystok. Uh, the Russian general, the only one who was still really being active was uh, Brusilov down in Galicia, and he had almost no artillery. Uh, he was forced back, and the Germans recaptured uh, Lemberg or, or Lviv in western Ukraine. So most of the Russian gains from 1914 have just been lost. So they retreated. Warsaw fell on the 4th of August, and so did Brest-Litovsk, a place we're going to hear about later which was 125 miles further east. By the middle of August, the Germans had taken 750,000 prisoners. Total Russian casualties estimated at 2 million. And <clears throat> the army retreated, but so did 10 million civilians. So now you have a massive refugee crisis. So now the roles have been completely reversed the British and French have to attack in the West to take the pressure off the Russians and draw German troops back to France. So the French decided to attack in Champagne and the British at a place called Luz, L-O-O-S. Of course, the British didn't have enough artillery and they didn't have enough shells. So Haig decided to use gas on a large scale. So yes, the Germans used it first, but obviously the British had some uh, ready. Of course, gas depends on a favorable wind, which wasn't forthcoming. So the attack was delayed for weeks until September 25th. And the great irony here is that a week earlier, Falkenhayn had called off the Eastern Offensive and transferred divisions back to France. 
So the whole reason for this attack is to take the pressure off the Russians. Well, that's already ended. So this attack is going to achieve what exactly? Wow. So did the British end up using gas somewhere else or they just? No, they used it there. They just had to wait for the wind to be going in the right direction. I see. So they had to postpone their attack. Nobody seems to have had much confidence in the lose operation. Sir John French in particular seemed to be losing his nerve. I mean in the sense of nervous breakdown. Uh, But Joffre appealed to Kitchener over his head, over French's head, and uh, Haig had recovered his own confidence. So the British attack went ahead. And the hope was that something would be achieved, even if it was only to impress our allies with our sincerity. So let us expose thousands of our men to be slaughtered as a gesture of our sincerity. Uh, Luz was a miserable defeat. Some of the poison gas blew back on British troops. The assault, as usual, was frontal. They captured the German forward trenches, and then British troops were sent to attack the second line without artillery support, because they had no shells, and without reconnaissance. German eyewitnesses, again, wrote that they had never seen such a target before or even imagined one like it. The machine gunners just, you know, traversed their weapons. They just fired from one side back to the other, and the effect was devastating. The British lost 50,000 men, the Germans 20,000. So Luz achieved nothing, and nothing was learned. And yet the repercussions were uh, quite enormous. Sir John French was dismissed, and Douglas Haig was promoted in his place. Haig had two things going for him. He was a personal friend of the king, and he had uh, unshakable confidence uh, rooted in his uh, deep Christian faith. He was sure that God was on his side, you know, watching his every move. Uh, They also changed Kitchener's role they promoted Sir William Robertson to chief of the Imperial General Staff. Now, Robertson's interesting in in several respects. He's the only soldier in the history of the British Army to have risen from an enlisted rank to the highest rank, field marshal. So he literally went from private to field marshal. And he still talked like a private. However, he was good friends, or at least he saw eye to eye with Haig, and he didn't trust politicians, and he didn't like Kitchener. So he did everything he could to undermine the politicians and Kitchener. Kitchener was left isolated without much real power anymore. Uh, the wow, French offensive... So a real, real changing of the guard. Changing of the guard, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, at the, and at this point, the politicians still don't know much about the military stuff, so they tend to leave it to the generals, leave them a free hand. We're going to see this with serious consequences elsewhere, but yeah, definitely that's what happened with the with the Brits. The, the French offensive in Champagne involved 35 divisions, 5,000 guns, 2,000 of them heavy. They captured 25,000 German soldiers and 160 guns, So it sounds like a great victory, but French casualties were over 190,000 and the German line remained unbroken. These are staggering numbers. You're just running headfirst into a brick wall and then 
deciding that, okay, well, next time we'll run faster, as if that's going to improve your chances. Do we have time for Gallipoli? Uh, yeah, let's do Gallipoli and then we'll pause. Yeah, because there are more disasters coming. <laughs> These aren't the only uh, ones. If, if you've heard the word Gallipoli before, uh, perhaps you've seen the film, which was quite good. Uh, you probably already know that it was a, a disaster. This is also known as the Dardanelle campaign. It's so these op- are both names that people place names that are not familiar to people. Gallipoli assume, sounds like Italy. Uh, it's and, Turkey. And Dardanelles, you know, nobody talks about the Dardanelles. So. Well, the Bosporus, the Straits, this is the, the passage between the Black Sea and the Aegean that runs by Constantinople. So controlling the straits means that Turkey can shut off passage from the Black Sea to the Aegean or or vice versa. And that means that they can uh, lock the Russians into the Black Sea and they can prevent their trade. And they are the Turks now have already a German the ally because right. of the Goibin, which we talked about. Right. And so Turkey's a German ally now, and they have, because of, Gel, it's called Gelibolu now, so you know. In Turkish? Yeah. Okay. So Gelibolu, and right, so Black Sea, Aegean Sea, and the ability to cut it off is control of the Straits of Dardanelle. Yeah. Well, one end is called the Dardanelle, and one end is called the Bosporus. I see. There's actually a little inner sea in there. Yeah, it doesn't look... Is there a canal there? There's a canal where Istanbul is? Yeah, it looks like there's a canal. It's it's natural. I see. And, of course, it's got Turkish guns on both sides. Uh, okay, that, is that the Bosporus or is that the Dardanelle up there where Istanbul is? Uh, I think Istanbul is at the Bosporus. Okay, and then the D- Straits of Dardanelle is, is Galibolu. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I, I'm sure Galibolu means something different to Turks than Gallipoli means to the British. And in between, okay, in between these two straits. The Sea of Marmara? The Sea of Marmara, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's, nobody's allowed, presumably nobody's allowed in the Sea of Marmara except Turks, or is that a kind of an. In wartime, word? yes. Yeah. 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 Because Turkey is completely on both sides of that. So it wouldn't be international Mm-mm. waters Mm-mm. okay so uh, so an attack in this area was an option that the british had already considered the moment turkey entered the war they're they're thinking hmm possibility winston churchill first lord of the admiralty was the most enthusiastic and energetic proponent uh the british had formed a war council in november of 1914 but prime minister asquith was uh Well, let's just say he wasn't especially decisive. He wasn't all that firm. Uh, The council met irregularly. And the top military men who had been put on the war council, they stayed silent. I have no idea why they would go to council meetings and say nothing and let the politicians ramble. Churchill had proposed an attack on the Dardanelles as early as November 25th of 1914. But the idea was shelved. 
until Russia appealed for help. So if, if you heard our last episode, uh, the Turks were invading the Caucasus in winter. Now, we know that the Turkish offensive ended in disaster, but that was not learned in London for some time. So it looked like the Russians are under attack. We have to help them against the Turks. And Churchill revived the Dardanelles idea. He sent a telegraph message to the British Admiral in the Aegean, Admiral Cardin, to ask about the feasibility of a purely naval assault. Cardin was cautious, but I think he knew what answer was expected. So he replied that a gradual approach might (laughs) succeed. I don't know what a gradual approach means. If you're going to go in and grab the Dardanelles, shouldn't it be a sudden surprise attack rather than a gradual? I don't know. Right. So then the Turks can kind of continuously feed. You're giving them the opportunity to continuously um, feed resources to taking it back if you try to nibble it away, right? Yeah, I, I, I would think. So Churchill took his plan to the council. Uh, Many senior naval officers were alarmed. (laughs) But the politicians, uh, they found Churchill's presentation on January 15th brilliant and exciting. Well, if there's one thing we know about Churchill is, you know, he he can talk. He can he can do a presentation. There's no question. So the decision was made to bombard and take the Gallipoli Peninsula with Constantinople as the object. And this is really weird, because looking at a map tells you that Gallipoli is pretty far from Constantinople, uh, with some rather mountainous ground in between. Um, it, you're going to need a fair number of men to take Constantinople, I would I would think. But then the council you know, agreed that the naval forces could always pull back if there was trouble. Which also sounds like you're telling the, the, the admiral in charge, yeah, if you run into any trouble, you can always just, you know, withdraw. Hmm. And the odd thing here is people seem to forget what they said in the past. Churchill forgot a memo written in 1911. I'll, I'll quote the memo. It should be remembered that it is no longer possible to force the Dardanelles and nobody would expose a modern fleet to such peril. I'm amazed that Churchill forgot this memo because he wrote it. (laughs) But apparently everybody was impressed by the German bombardment of the Belgian forts. This is going to come up again and again. Uh, And... You know, Churchill looked at some later notes that Turkish defense batteries were conspicuously sighted, exposed, equipped with obsolete uh, guns. So Churchill didn't have a very high rating of Turkish military competence. Uh, Neither did anybody else. Even Admiral Fisher put aside his misgivings. You know, once they started talking about how much resistance the Turks could put up, they figured not very much. So Admiral Cardin opened his attack on February 19th. He had no trouble suppressing the outer forts at Sed Elbar and Kumkale. The Turkish batteries inside the straits were too light 
to damage armored warships. But the straits themselves had been mined. And they could uh -huh. see the mines. So Admiral Carden brought in fishing trawlers with civilian crews to sweep the mines. So basically, you're going to hook these mines, cut the cables that are anchoring them, and remove them. Um, minesweepers, obviously, the, the ship minesweepers did not exist yet. So he's going to use amateurs. Uh, neither the crews nor the officers in command of them had any experience doing this. <laughs> Bad weather, powerful currents, and oh yeah, Turkish guns firing at you made the task even more difficult. Mm -hmm. So here's this weird situation where the Turkish guns can't hurt the warships, but obviously they can do tremendous damage to fishing trawlers. The trawlers are removing the mines, which are dangerous to the big ships, and so, uh, so the whole exercise was uh, pretty much a complete failure. So Churchill urging him on, Admiral Carden decided to reverse his his tactics. He would send in the warships first to silence the Turkish guns, and then the trawlers can come in uh, and remove the mines. The night before, though, Carden collapsed. I, I don't know what happened to him specifically, but he's out of action. And he was replaced by Rear Admiral Robeck. So on March 18th, the British sailed in and found out that the mines were not just laid across the channel. They had been also laid parallel to the coastline. And they, oh, they found, thought they were they thought they were being clever by g hugging the coast. Yeah, well, they wanted to suppress the uh, the guns on either coastline. Right. right. So they find they found these mines by the simple expedient of running into them, blowing them up. Right. So of Robeck's nine battleships, three were sunk and three were damaged. Now, admittedly, these are not super dreadnoughts. Those are all in the North Sea fleet opposite Germany. But these are still, you know, battleships. And that's that, what's here. It's what you have here. It's, it's yeah. not. Yeah. But you, you're down to three of your nine battleships. Uh, Army officers are on board observing the Navy's efforts. Uh, Kitchener sent in Lieutenant General Birdwood, who was in command in Egypt of the uh, Australian and, and New Zealand troops there. So he was sent to observe, and he reported a military force was essential. So now the step is taken to nominate General Sir Ian Hamilton, commander of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force which would consist of some 70,000 men. They're scraping together some British and French troops, and they will use the, the Anzacs, the Australians and New Zealand's uh, troops who've been training in, in Egypt. Uh, after Robeck's disaster, the army's very willing to take over and show that, that they can do it. So Hamilton uh, consulted with Robeck and then went to Egypt to organize his forces. He didn't take his staff with him. He had no decent maps of the area that they were planning to land in, and the information he had on Turkish defenses dated from 1906. And he's going to go and put a plan together by himself. Uh, Robert Rhodes James, one of the authors I read on the subject of Gallipoli, says that the British drifted 
haphazardly into a highly difficult amphibious operation. There was no formal decision by the War Council to make a landing. In fact, the Council didn't meet at all for two months. The Secretary of the Council, Maurice Hankey, tried to get an assessment of the situation from Hamilton and Robeck without success. So he wrote, the military operation appears to be, to a certain extent, a gamble upon the supposed shortage of supplies and inferior fighting qualities of the Turkish armies. Hanke was pretty smart, and this is a really prophetic comment. There was zero calculation of whether the British had enough resources to attempt this. Instead, they seem to have you know, decided, well, we have this many men, that should be enough. Right. They, they just had too many things going on at once, too many irons in the fire. Kitchener, you know, by now wants a decisive result on the Western Front. Churchill wants the Dardanelles. The Secretary of State for India wants Mesopotamia. The Secretary of State for the Colonies is busy invading multiple parts of Africa, which we mentioned in our previous episode. General Maxwell, who was commanding in Egypt, asked the, the correct question. Who is coordinating and directing this great combine? So Hamilton didn't concern himself with naval operations at all. Anything on the water, he left to the Navy. He didn't bring his administrative staff into the initial planning. Actually, he didn't bring them into anything at all, really. I don't know what he thought a staff was for, maybe having dinner with. So there was virtually zero security. Everybody and their brother knew the plan. The Turks knew the plan. Over the objections of his subordinates... Uh, these are the two British generals who will be commanding major parts of the operation, Birdwood and Hunter Weston. Uh, they both suggested that we land on the Asian side as well. We'll take both sides of the Dardanelles. Uh, he overruled them. We're just going to land on the European side. So the 29th British Division is going to land on five small beaches at the southern end of the Gallipoli Peninsula. And the Anzacs will land further to the west, and from there they can advance to the heights of Maltepe. There were a couple of subsidiary faint landings. The landings were delayed, though. Hamilton found out that the transports had been incorrectly packed. The most essential items were put in first, which means that they were at the bottom. The least important stuff was on top. They don't even know how, how to did, pack a suitcase. It's how does this happen? <laughs> well, this happens when you don't use your staff. Oh, and, right. He didn't bring his staff. And you just... Uh. Meanwhile, the Turks were having their own problems. Uh, their response to this urgent situation was uh, rather lethargic. The, the German General von Sanders arrived to take command. He had 62,000 troops to defend 150 miles of coastline. He had no aircraft, and the army was, in fact, deficient in artillery and equipment. Uh, morale was low. These Turkish soldiers were accustomed to defeat after the Balkan Wars. Some British historians give uh, von Sanders a great deal of credit, but James says that he made multiple mistakes of his own. He put troops inland, very far from the beaches, while his Turkish officers told him 
there were only half a dozen places where the British could land. Like Hamilton, uh, Sanders overestimated the effects of naval bombardment on troops who were dug in. What saved him from a, a really big defeat was essentially British mismanagement and the, the courage of the Turkish troops. So the landings took place on April 25th. Three of them were unopposed. One had to overcome resistance and one was a complete disaster. So a little bit like D-Day in 1944. Uh, at Sed El Bar, the troops came ashore under a torrent of fire or, or they sat in the water helplessly uh, jammed into open boats. Their commander, Hunter Weston, was aboard a cruiser five minutes away, but he wasn't aware of what had happened until later in the day. The Anzacs were landed in the wrong place, a mile off target, facing steep cliffs and, and scrub-covered gorges. It was difficult to advance, and congestion grew as more and more troops piled up on the tiny beach. It got the nickname Anzac Cove. Only one battery of field artillery was landed all day, and the troops were landed in different places so that the units were hopelessly intermingled. If you're looking for the rest of your battalion, well, who knows where they are. The maps were dangerously inaccurate, and by mid-morning, the Turks were counterattacking, led by an energetic colonel by the name of Mustafa Kemal. I think Mustafa you've heard Kemal. I think you've heard of him? Yes, I think we'll hear of him again. Yeah, we will. So the Anzacs were pushed back with heavy casualties until they held about a thousand yards of land. That was it. Birdwood's divisional commanders advised evacuation. So he consulted with his superior, Hamilton, who ordered him to hang on. That was about the only thing Hamilton did that day. He was aboard a battleship well out to sea apparently having a nap in the middle of the day. Wow. The, Brit the British pressed forward, uh, but by May 8th, they had pretty much shot their bolt and they had taken 20,000 casualties, including 6,000 dead. Medical and supply arrangements were ridiculously inadequate and basically collapsed under the strain. Uh, a German submarine found the fleet and Turkish torpedo boats did as well. And between them, they sank three more battleships. So that was the end of the first phase of the Gallipoli campaign. You have troops ashore in the wrong places sometimes with narrow stretches of land and up above them on the rocky heights are the Turks dug in. So it's interesting that Churchill didn't seem to this doesn't seem to attach to Churchill as one of his oh my gosh things. really it sure does it does oh yeah oh okay. yeah it, it, it this haunted him okay in 1940 there were plenty of people who thought that he was not qualified to be prime minister because, because of Gallipoli yeah. that oh they hadn't forgotten uh-uh and and he's gone as of as of now, he's gone. The Liberal government was already being rocked by the shell scandal, right? The British generals in France let it be known that they didn't have enough shells, and it was the fault of this that had caused their defeats and all of that. So the Liberal government fell. Asquith had to form a new coalition, including more conservatives, 
including Balfour, the former conservative leader. Churchill was replaced as first Lord of the Admiralty. So he's out. He's going to take the blame for this right off. And the new government established a ministry of munitions under Lloyd George. So when they did this new government, the inner cabinet resolved to support Hamilton and more troops were sent. By this point, though, the battlefield, uh, I, I quote, looked like a midden heap and smelt like an opened cemetery. What's a midden heap? Uh, a garbage heap, usually of kitchen waste and human waste. Okay. There was nowhere for the troops to dig latrines. Right. There was nowhere to bury large numbers of dead. The British had not captured the heights. The troops were being constantly shelled. They suffered in the heat. And now they were ravaged by dysentery. If you're not familiar with dysentery, it is an extreme and uh, potentially fatal form of diarrhea. You you have eaten something or drunk, usually drunk some water that is going to basically dehydrate you. You're going to go to the bathroom that frequently. Well, there is no bathroom. You're going to void your bowels that frequently. Uh, there was an examination of seven Austrian, uh, Australian, sorry, battalions, and they found that 78% of the men had dysentery. There was no shade. Everything from the ships, even water, had to be landed at night. So Hamilton came up with a new plan. It was daring, but overcomplicated. So part one is the Anzacs, with British and Indian reinforcements, would break out to the north assisted by diversionary attacks by Hunter Weston, who's over at Gallipoli proper. Uh, At dawn on August 6th, a new army corps would land further west at Suvla Bay, which was expected to be sparsely defended. So the Turkish positions held by an estimated 30,000 men would be attacked from the front and the rear by 63,000 Allied troops. This time, the preparations were made in complete secrecy. Senior commanders were not informed until very late. But General Frederick, Sir Frederick Stopford, commander of this new corps, was allowed to change his instructions so that his task was now merely to land at Suvla Bay and capture it not to advance. There was also no coordination between Stopford and Birdwood, who's the guy he's supposed to be supporting. So the the Supreme Commander, Hamilton, did his usual. He stayed at headquarters for two vital days. Uh, H.A.P. Taylor has a note on this part of the episode. He says that Hamilton had asked for some younger, more energetic officers But they were all going to France. He was told that he had to choose those with seniority on the army list. So he had he had to take Stopford, who was the former governor of the Tower of London. Stopford had served at Tel El Kibir in 1882 with with Kitchener in Egypt. He had been a military secretary in the Boer War. 
but he had never commanded troops in wartime. So Stafford watched his men go ashore, congratulated them on their successful landing without going ashore himself, and took an afternoon nap. This is the second nap. Well, the, the other the other commander. one is the other one is rumored of Hamilton, and I'm I'm not 100% sure about that one. Mind you, he did stay out on a ship well out of contact, so he could might very well have been napping. But Stafford's nap is actually cited in several sources. Uh, under the circumstances, it it's amazing that they almost succeeded. Uh, the, the New Zealanders, after a chaotic night march, remember their maps were all wrong, they were actually close to seizing the summit of a, a hill called Sari Bair. The men showed courage and initiative, but of course they were inexperienced and classic with the British, Hesitation of senior officers ruined their chance. The landing at Suvla Bay next to them was something of a shambles, but succeeded. The men got ashore, but then they stayed there, glued to it. No advance was made. The German commander von Sanders had been fooled. He didn't know the British were going to land there. So he handed over the defense to Colonel Kemal. And Kemal's desperate counterattack swept the Allies back from the positions they'd gained. So they're back to clinging to their little beaches exposed shell to shell fire that they started on. So the rest of the Gallipoli campaign was pretty anticlimactic. Hamilton launched another attack from Suvla Bay. In terms of numbers, it was the biggest yet, uh, but it failed. And then it was trench warfare from then on, with the Allies at a, a serious disadvantage, especially when Bulgaria entered the war and Austrian guns appeared on the Turkish side. So Austria had some pretty big cannons. They weren't Krupp guns. They came from the Skoda munitions plant in uh, Czechoslovakia, well, in the Czech side. So the Turks got themselves some heavy guns and did major damage. Hamilton was recalled in October. Sir Charles Monroe uh, took over and his recommendation was evacuate. The government dithered. I love that word. It describes so many, uh, <laughs> so many of the ways yeah. the British blew opportunities in, in the war. <laughs> Kitchener went out to see for himself and finally agreed Monroe was right. The evacuation of Suvla Bay and Anzac Cove was brilliantly conducted in late December without a single casualty. That's amazing. And then the other position, uh, the Hellas position closest to Gallipoli, was evacuated again without losing men, although they, they left behind a lot of equipment. Um, how... This is... <laughs> Hamilton being recalled is like being fired, right? Yep. Yeah. And yeah, but he'll be he'll be posted to some other position where he can't do any damage. You know what's amazing is like the resilience of the British Empire in the sense that this doesn't look less filled with blunders than things the Russian czarists were doing, but Britain's just just keeps going, you know, just keeps going. But the Russians get overthrown in a revolution. 
in that sense, they remind me of the Romans. Yeah, yeah. Because typically a a Roman war begins with some catastrophic, disastrous defeat. Yeah. Followed by another disastrous defeat. Like, I mean, the whole war against Hannibal. Yeah, they just, they only win the last one, yeah. But they have enormous reserves of manpower and willpower. And yeah, well, the British have enormous reserves of manpower and they're not afraid to fight to the last Indian, Canadian. (laughs) Exactly. But by that logic, like Russia also had enormous reserves of manpower, but it fell apart anyway. So I I just it's there's something there is something worth trying to study and figure out about why Britain never had a revolution even to this day. Well, just just a quick guess. Uh, the Russians lost the Russo-Japanese War in rather humiliating fashion, conclusive mm-hmm. and humiliating defeat. Right. The British have disasters, but they don't usually lose the war in a humiliating fashion. Yeah. yeah. You could say the American Revolution, but even then, that was overwhelming odds and... Right, and they were fighting the French too. Yeah, yeah. So there was one more casualty of the Gallipoli campaign. That was the Asquith government. Uh, Churchill's reputation was stained right up until May of 1940. Uh, he he spent those years politically uh, in the wilderness. He, he'd already changed parties once before. Um, nobody, he was considered brilliant, but... Um, eccentric and even wild, an adventurer, right? Taking great risks. So nobody wanted him in their cabinet. Uh, Kitchener's prestige was badly damaged. And of course, there was no help for Russia. But by then, Britain had acquired a new commitment in the Mediterranean, and that was Salonika. So they're going to send troops there and leave them there. Uh, In the Gallipoli campaign, the British suffered over 200,000 casualties, many, many of those to disease. Uh, Turkish losses, probably comparable. And like nobody's, no, these are not big enough losses to make anybody consider maybe making peace or getting out of the war or anything. It's just like, oh, well. Spent money. Let's keep going. Yeah. Sunk, sunk, sunk costs. Yeah. Yeah. On December 28th, the British cabinet formally resolved that the Western Front would be the decisive theater of the war. So they're basically ruling out another Gallipoli and saying. Yeah. Uh, so it did have some major effects on how they thought about what they were Oh, doing. yeah. And reputations were ruined, right? Primarily Churchill's, but there was a lot there was a lot of blame to go around. Let's put it that way. Uh, I just want to close the Gallipoli uh, experiment with a, a commentary from Lloyd George. Expeditions which are decided upon and organized with insufficient care generally end disastrously. Ah, it's a good. So he learned this from this campaign, and he—it's a lesson learned, right? <laughs> no, he wrote it in 1914. Uh... <laughs> There were others. Uh, Serbia, for example. So the Serbs had fought off the Austrians in 1914. Uh, Through the spring and summer, it it was a pretty quiet front. It seemed like 
the Austrians and the Serbs were both reluctant to start fighting again. Uh, because Russia side. had invaded Germany and there was no uh, big Austria knew Russia wasn't coming. And so Serbia also didn't want to just start fighting Austria with without Russia's help, probably. Well, they were down to about 200,000 men. And on top of that, they were devastated by a typhus epidemic. Across the country or just in the army? Uh, in the center of the country. But yeah, the army and the civilian refugees that were with them. So Falkenhayn, the German war minister, had decided to eliminate Serbia once and for all. Uh, he wanted to open up a railway link to Turkey and also to bring Bulgaria into the war. So Bulgaria was offered the Macedonian lands, which they had hoped to gain in the Balkan Wars that had been taken from them by Serbia. And German forces were sent there under Field Marshal Mackensen to organize the next offensive. And the Serbs found out about the diplomatic overtures to Bulgaria. Prime Minister Pasic immediately appealed to the French, asking for 150,000 Allied soldiers uh, coming through Salonika. This is the Greek port uh, that they occupied in the Balkan Wars. The Prime Minister of Greece, Venizelos, was sympathetic, but the French and British couldn't spare that many men. The best they could do was to strip about 13,000 troops from the Gallipoli operation, and those soldiers were landed at Salonika on October 5th. The Greek king, Constantine, uh, forced his prime minister to resign and to adopt a more strictly neutral stance. Part of this was he was the Kaiser's brother-in-law. <laughs> and I think part of it, too, was he didn't want Greece involved in World War I, at least not without some more concrete promises of what Greece stood to gain. So with the Greek authorities now on uncooperative and with three mountain ranges between Salonika and the Serbian army, there, there wasn't much that that little allied force could do. And in fact, a day after the landing, Mackinson's offensive began. It was uh, expertly planned. It was kept secret. And then, according to Palmer, executed with meticulous precision. There's definitely this technical admiration for, you know, whenever the Germans are doing something, uh, you know, historians or, or witnesses are impressed by their efficiency. The bombardment was highly effective. Belgrade fell two days later. And within 10 days, the Germans and Austrians had bridged the river and a quarter of a million troops were advancing. The Bulgarians declared war on October 14th, and they drove towards Niche, which was now the uh, temporary capital of Serbia, and a, and a vital railway junction only 45 miles from the Bulgarian border. Uh, the French tried to move forward from Salonika. There was a skirmish with the Bulgarians by French troops under General Sarai, 
But this is still 200 miles south of Kragujevac, which is where the Serbian army was concentrated, because that was their armaments factory, their only one. Uh, the citizens of Nice were apparently so cheered by the news that the French were fighting that they decorated the streets with, with bunting, and it was still there when the Bulgarians marched in on November 5th. Uh, by then, by October 31st, actually, the Germans had captured Kragujevac, uh, Mackensen was hoping to trap the Serbian army there, but the Serbs retreated. So first they went to Kosovo, and then they retreated out of their country into the mountains of Albania. Their, their only hope was to reach the Adriatic, where Allied ships could evacuate them. And at this point, there were so many refugees uh, joining the troops that it was more like a nation on the march than an army. They just they just didn't even have a prayer of trying to stand and fight against the Germans, I guess. No. No, they didn't have the numbers or the weapons. Uh, and that retreat across the mountains in winter was an incredible ordeal. Uh, in, in one contingent, they went in three different columns. One of the contingents, 20,000 men and women died in the space of three weeks. Uh, killed by the terrible winter conditions, uh, by typhus, or by ambushes uh, by Albanian fighters. The the king was there, 71-year-old king. Uh, so was the crown prince, Alexander. General Putnik, the commander, was sick. He had to be carried. And the Serbs also took along their Austrian prisoners. And they finally reached the coast at Scutari on December 15th, but they still weren't safe. Uh, Austria launched an offensive against Montenegro in January, and Scutari fell on January 22nd. The, the Serbians were already moving again, retreating down the coast towards Durazzo, now, now known as Durez. Some of the older men were evacuated by sea, uh, but the Serbs had to continue retreating to Valona, which was the best harbor in Albania. So the British Navy showed up, escorting Italian and French transports, and they began evacuating people. They took them to the island of Corfu, which the French had seized in January. Corfu is Greek, so Greece protested loudly but the French went ahead and did it anyway. So I found this interesting. You remember how German violation of Belgian neutrality brought Britain into the war. Uh, French violation of Greek neutrality, eh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> not, even, not even a headline. Um, some 10,000 more of the evacuees uh, died on Corfu, mostly typhus. Uh, but by the summer of 1916, over 100,000 Serbian soldiers were moved to Salonika. So their country was completely occupied, but they weren't finished fighting. So that's like the Austrian war aim achieved right there. Yep. Took uh, a little but, longer than they expected. So I guess they should. everybody can just go home now. Yep. Okay. 
Um, the other thing is um, that I noticed is this is a little bit like uh, Dunkirk, isn't it? I never. Um... Oh, the evacuation. Yeah, I didn't realize this was there that there had already been a case of an entire army, an entire national army, kind of evacuating. I guess this is different in the sense that this is Serbia's actual army as opposed to the British uh, expeditionary force in France. No, but you've got a point there. the The British <laughs> evacuated from Gallipoli very efficiently. Yeah, and then the Allies pulled off a major, another major evacuation. Maybe yeah, they should there, stick to that. But there is this uh, there's this concept in Tuckman where she talks about the German idea of keeping a fleet in being or an army in being. Mm-hmm. So it's just the fact that the fleet has not been destroyed is an ongoing threat as opposed to trying to fight the British fleet as the German fleet and knowing that you're going to lose if you have a, battle, a naval battle. But just to kind of have the Navy exist but then there's this whole debate in military thinking where is it really all that valuable if the enemy knows you're never going to engage them to have such a thing um so that was this is this there's an analogy here where the serbian army still continues to exist so it's not um a total victory in the sense of the annihilation of the enemy's forces but if that wasn't the goal no, but Salonika is um, <laughs> Salonika is almost another disaster all on its own. Right. right. If you look at a map, it it seems to be a major threat to the southern flank of Austria. Uh, it seems to be a threat to Bulgaria. In reality, the troops that built up there, because the French and British eventually sent more troops. Yeah. And, and the numbers rose until there were half a million men there. <clears throat> and they achieved uh, very little. <laughs> uh, in fact, one German officer referred to Salonika as the greatest internment camp of the oh, entire wow. war. So they're just sitting there doing nothing. Well, think of what half a million men could have achieved somewhere else like the western Mm -hmm. front or you know directly helping the russians but can't get to the russians and didn't think of using them elsewhere but that we'll we'll come back to that one so uh before you start the next story i i should tell you some why this is going to solve a mystery for me ah and possibly for some other listeners but as a anti-war person in post 2000 yeah post 2000 i guess you could say uh there was a journalist who has a long background a british journalist english uh who has a long background writing about lebanon and iraq and uh israel palestine his name was robert fisk uh, i can't remember when he died but uh he did he did die some years back. Uh, and I interviewed him once, actually. He, he used to come to Toronto and give l- lectures when he would release a book. He, he didn't consider himself an activist. He was a he was kind of a genteel British, you know, kind of aristocratic type. <laughs> I got I gathered. I don't know. He might not be an aristocrat. They have a very variegated class system over there. So I don't know exactly where he fit. But he was a uh, 
He was a journalist with The Independent, and I think he broke the story of the Sabra and Shatila massacres in 1982 in uh, Lebanon. And he wrote a lot about Iraq during the during the run up to the Iraq war. I think he went to Iraq a bunch. Uh, he, he was always in the region writing about things uh, when he was when when those wars were happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he, uh, when he would mock uh, Tony Blair in particular, Tony Blair being the prime minister at the time of the Iraq War, who, who famously joined the the Bush uh, administration and and adjoined UK to to the whole war on terror, um, as despite being a Labour uh, prime minister, so this was a big seen as a big betrayal by Labour for some of the Labour Party people. Um, so he, uh, Fisk would call him Lord Blair of Kut al Amara, and I never knew. <laughs> I, 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 and Fisk is someone who I always read. I never missed, but there was something about him. I always found him a little bit, I don't know, dismissive of of Arab writers and and Arab journalists. And so uh, this is kind of a, a little bit of an Orientalist that he would mock. People by I, I assumed it was some kind of mockery of, um, uh, like he was likening Blair to some kind of uh, Eastern despot. So I didn't look into it further. <laughs> no, but uh, it seems like there's more to the story, and maybe I was being a little unfair to Fisk. Um, so I will with that with that Lord Blair of Kut al Amara. I think you're about to explain to me what. What, what that means what the deal is what that why that's funny did did fisk have a, a sort of genteel accent yeah i would say he, he to, uh, you know i don't again i don't know the working class i don't know the accents all that well i have friends i have many english friends from many walks of life so i do know <clears throat> i do recognize that there are many regional accents and when right. we when you and i do you know, when you and I try to perform our English accent, uh, you know, there's like <laughs> some somewhere between imitating Monty Python and <laughs> so people people from England I know think it's pretty funny when we try to do that accent. But um, <laughs> well, I'm, but, I'm looking at his yeah. at his uh, wiki page. Yeah, uh, he went to Lancaster University, but right. then got his PhD at Trinity College Dublin. Okay. So, so, I so not uh, he's not an Oxford. I I could tell he's not like an Oxford guy. No, uh, but he's no, also he not. He also wasn't. Kent. Okay, but he uh, he also isn't like he he doesn't sound like a street. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, he doesn't no. sound like a street accent either to me. But did did you know of his World War One connection? Robert Fisk. Yeah. No. No. His his father fought in the First World War. Okay, and at the end of the war was punished for disobeying an order to execute another soldier. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, Fisk said, my father's refusal to kill another man was the only thing he did in his life, which I would also have done. (laughs) (laughs) You see how clever he was, though? He was a very, very clever guy. Very, very clever. And yeah, well. Your Kut Alamara uh, reference, I would not have gotten before, you know, we researched this podcast. Okay. But here's the here's the story. 
So in October of 1914, very soon after the outbreak of the war, a single uh, division, a depleted division of Indian troops, the 6th Puna, was sent to secure the oil fields in Iraq, still known as Mesopotamia at the time. Uh, General Sir John Nixon uh, was in command. Three quarters of the troops were Indian and one quarter British. And Mesopotamia at this time is a province of the Ottoman Empire, I guess. Except that the British had leased the oil fields and and were in control, I think, of the railway building of that section. Right. And then there's, of course, the Baghdad to Berlin. Right. Project, railway project. Yeah, and all the French investment. So the British are going to secure the oil fields. They easily occupied Basra, and then they established an outpost uh, at Kurna, at the junction of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That was 46 miles further north. And since they didn't run into any Turkish troops, Nixon pushed 90 miles further up the Tigris to Amara. Uh, His task of securing the oil fields is accomplished. So why didn't they stop there? And the source that I read, A.J. Barker, says, muddled thinking and (laughs) doubtful wisdom (laughs) That's why they didn't stop. There were political uh, reasons, I suppose. Prime Minister Asquith in the House of Commons, uh, November 2nd of 1915, he said, to secure the neutrality of the Arabs and generally to maintain the authority of our flag in the East. That's Mm. pretty nebulous. (laughs) Yeah, and also... Also, it, it's very curious how they how they go about securing neutrality, right? You go, you secure neutrality by occupying somebody's territory, as opposed yeah. to you know making a deal. <laughs> yeah. We both sign a neutrality agreement. That's that's also a better yeah, way, very, maybe. I know that they didn't do that in not South, to, not to East Africa either. Yeah. There's. Uh, some indication that the British were afraid of a, a Muslim holy war that might threaten their Indian possessions. Yeah. And in fact, the caliph, the, the, the Ottoman sultan, did uh, call for a holy war against Britain and France and Russia, but that didn't, didn't do much. So this operation is being directed from India, not from London. But why did they keep pressing? So, prestige. Uh, Barker says the British had been embarrassed at Gallipoli. So, a victory against Turkey would be nice. But they didn't allocate any further resources to Mesopotamia. Military reasons? I don't know. It it looks like sheer opportunism. Turkish opposition had been very light. And Major General Charles Townsend, who was commanding the troops directly, was an ambitious guy. He had already reached Kut. This is only 170 kilometers from Baghdad. So he thought, why not go on? You know, Baghdad, the city of the Caliphs, what a prize that would be. His name 
would, would be famous. So Townshend got the green light. Uh, two more divisions were promised from France, but you know, obviously they're not going to arrive for some time. Nobody seemed to consider the fact that a single division could not possibly hold Baghdad, even if they captured the city. Did they walk? How did they go? Yeah. Did they? Did they? Did they take up? Were they Marines? Uh, no, they do have a few boats on the river. Okay. But the but the main force is yeah marching 500 kilometers from Basra. Okay, and, and, but this division, where did it? It's headquartered in India, or it was already it was sent, in. It was sent from India, so they landed. They landed up in and the occupied Gulf. Occupied Basra, okay. and now they're pushing north from there. So they went through the Gulf of Oman, mm-hmm. and the Persian Gulf landed at Basra. I see. Now, if you're going to advance 500 kilometers, you might want some transport, and they didn't have enough. Also, they have no reserves to fall back on. If anything goes badly, uh, and given the title of the episode, (laughs) yeah, yeah, so... um, And the Turks, so they're coming in from Basra, and the Turks can come overland to Iraq from lots of different places. Right. And they are sending they are sending troops. Townshend finally ran into stiff Turkish resistance uh, resistance. Pardon me, yeah. at uh, Tesiphon. There's an ancient ancient name. Uh, this is only 18 miles from Baghdad. It was the former capital of the Parthian and Sassanid Persian empires. Oh. And here, there's good defensive terrain, and the Turks were entrenched. So the British had. 11,000 men. Uh, the Turkish general uh, Nureddin or Nuruddin Pasha had 18,000 men and 52 guns. It was a British victory. Turkish casualties were between six and 9,000, but the British suffered 4,500 casualties themselves. That's almost half of their men. So Townshend had no choice but to fall back to Kut. So, no taking of Baghdad. There was indignation in Britain. The public had been following the progress of the campaign, and they were expecting to hear about the capture of Baghdad. Sure. So, on top of this failure, there was a story that appeared in the newspapers that the wounded were not being looked after properly because the medical services were completely inadequate. The the campaign was being run in traditional British fashion, on the cheap, or on a shoestring budget, if you prefer that expression. Barker says, piddling and parsimonious. Nice alliteration. So the public were angry, angry at the failure and angry at this expose of you know, medical inefficiency or inadequate medical services. Mm -hmm. But the news from the Western Front overshadowed everything and government censorship kept the worst elements of the story out of the newspapers. Townshend's men uh, reached Kut early in December of 1915. 
the Turks followed, and within a couple of days, his division was completely surrounded. The troops were tired, but morale was still good because they had beaten the Turks and they seemed to have trusted Tauchin. Now, he could have retreated further, but he chose to defend Kut Alamara, and actually Nixon, his, his uh, commander, ordered him to do that. Unfortunately, the town wasn't prepared for a siege. Food stocks were limited. There were five or six thousand civilians in Kut, and they had to eat as well. And for political reasons, it was decided to let them stay instead of expelling them. Now, it would have been cruel to kick them out of their homes, but it would have been a wiser military decision. Barker says it was a big mistake. For three, for three weeks, the Turks made several attacks. Every single one was repulsed with heavy loss. And by Christmas, the Turks simply settled down for a siege. It didn't occur to General Nur din that the British might have run low on ammunition, <laughs> which they had. Wow. He himself received substantial reinforcements, raising his numbers to over 30,000. And a German general, von der Goltz, arrived. He had served with Turkish forces for 12 years in the 1880s and 90s, so he knew them. And they decided to leave a screen around Kut, but to set up a defensive line south of the city to defend against a, a British relief force, which they expected to show up. Now, the relief force was late. The, uh, the cabinet had debated whether one division would be enough or if two would be needed. And <laughs> to make cabinet. This, that's a cabinet decision, not a military decision. To send them to, uh, yeah, to send them that far, cabinet is debating this. Well, they have a, a committee of imperial defense. And most, uh, sorry, a lot of the cabinet were on there. This is still in the days under Asquith, and the committee was simply too big. So they set up a subcommittee. That usually works well. So the relief force eventually came up the river, uh, or beside the river anyway, and reached the Turkish positions at Sheikh Saad on January 6th. After three days of heavy fighting, the Turks withdrew about 16 kilometers. And the next battle was at a place simply called the Wadi on January 13th. And after that fight, the Turks retreated again eight more kilometers. On the 21st, another battle was fought at the Hana Defile, a narrow uh, strip of land. The British attacked and suffered 2,700 killed and wounded. Uh, this is of the relief The relief force. force. Yeah. So they're having to fight several battles to get there. And yes, the Turks are giving ground, but they're making you pay for it every time. Meanwhile, the garrison of Kut was in trouble. Uh, rations were short and the British were eating horse meat which very few of the Indian troops were willing to do. Townshend was desperate enough to use the radio to contact religious leaders in India and obtained a dispensation for the Indian troops to consume what they called siege meat. 
I guess if we don't call it horse, it isn't. Uh, Townshend also sent out a series of messages on the radio asking for a promotion for himself. He wanted oh, to go major a, general to colonel general. It's an interesting priority. Yeah. 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 Uh, Turkish reinforcements arrived and a new general, Khalil Pasha, took over. And he had heavy guns. They started to bombard Kut. And the Ottomans were seen unloading metal cylinders from a barge on the River Tigris. And they were assumed to contain chemical weapons from Germany. Mm. Townshend, in his diary, called chemical warfare a cowardly barbarism worthy of Chinese pirates. But Chinese pirates don't use chemical weapons. Only civilized people have used chemical weapons until now. Right. Also, I wonder what he called it when the British used gas. Uh, Winston Churchill, 1919. Oh, I, I, do not, war. I do not understand the squeamishness about the use of gas. We have definitely <laughs> adopted the position at the peace conference of arguing in favor of the retention of gas as a permanent method of warfare. I am strongly in favor of using poisoned gas against uncivilized tribes. Well, General Haig yep. was in favor of using it against the Germans. I guess even civilized, even civilized tribes. Yeah. Uh, Townshend apparently was rarely seen in the front lines. And while he visited the sick and wounded in hospital, it, it was pretty obvious that he preferred to visit British soldiers and neglected the Indian soldiers. So morale was sinking for a variety of reasons. Uh, the British relief expedition attacked again at the Dujela Redoubt on March 8th, and they lost 4,000 men. Uh, the generals were sacked and replaced. Uh, there were several more battles in April, and British losses mounted. Apparently, they had uh, aircraft, and they tried to drop food parcels and ammunition into the town. Uh, obviously, it wasn't much. And plus, they, they apparently they frequently missed and dropped the parcels in the wrong places. That was the end of the relief efforts. You know, very interesting trying to supply from air. I, I know the aircraft were, by later standards, you know, fairly small and yeah. didn't have much carrying capacity, but kind of foreshadows the... Uh, failed attempt to supply Stalingrad from the air. And oh, places. yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was a big army they were trying to supply from the air. Yeah, but they also dropped an awful lot in the wrong places and insufficient quantities anyway. Uh, that last battle in uh, on March 8th was pretty much the end of the relief efforts. The British had lost 30,000 men trying to rescue Townshend. Townshend, who went in there with 11,000 in the first place. Yeah. According to... So did uh, he get... Wait, you never said, did he get the promotion? <laughs> uh, coming up. According to uh, an American historian, David Fromkin, he wrote a book called A Peace to End All Peace in 1989. According to him, the British attempted to buy their troops out. 
Aubrey Herbert and T.E. Lawrence, yes, that Lawrence, were part of a team of officers sent to negotiate a secret deal with the Ottomans. The British offered two million pounds and promised that they would not fight the Ottomans again in exchange for the release of Townshend's troops. Enver Pasha at first pretended to negotiate in good faith, then publicized the offer and rejected it as a final humiliation. Uh, at this point, Townshend had no option but to surrender. The men piled their weapons and they were marched away. The Turks separated the men from the officers and what lay ahead for them was a march across the desert all the way to Aleppo. Many of them died along the way. The survivors were kept for two and a half years in pretty awful conditions. Apparently, the day of the surrender, they were given food, but they were given contaminated biscuits. Uh, some of the men died. Many were aff afflicted with enteritis. And a number of sources agree that the treatment of the prisoners from Kut was comparable to World War II treatment of prisoners of war by the Japanese. Uh, I've seen photographs of some of the survivors, and they're they're emaciated. They they look like near skeletons. And most most of these are Indians, or yep, yeah, yeah. Some of the Indian prisoners of war from Kut uh, later joined the Ottoman Indian Volunteer Corps under the influence of Deobandis uh, from the Silk Letter movement. So these were Sunni revivalists who aimed at Indian independence from Britain by allying with the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, with Afghanistan and with Germany. So some of these soldiers, along those recruited from prisoners from European battlefields, because Indian troops fought there as well, uh, they fought alongside Ottoman forces on a number of fronts. Uh, the Indians were led by Amba Prasad Sufi. Uh, during the war, he was joined by Kedarnath Sondi, Rishikesh Lethap, and Amin Chowdhury. So that's an interesting yeah. part of this that you know I didn't know about. That's incredible, yeah. So Townshend himself, you were wondering about his promotion. He was taken to the island of Hebeliada on the Sea of Marmara, where he sat out the war in relative luxury. Another book, uh, Norman Dixon, on the psychology of military incompetence. <laughs> Good title. Uh, it, isn't it? Uh, he described Townshend as being amused by the plight of the men uh, that he had avoided, as if he had pulled off some clever trick. And Dixon says that Townshend was unable to understand why his friends and comrades were ultimately uh, angered by his behavior. The British government now took over the direction of the Mesopotamia campaign from the authorities in India. So, of course, there was an inquiry 
into the scandal of the medical arrangements, and the search for scapegoats began. So the blame was, paced, was placed uh, firmly on the Indian side, the British officials in charge of the Indian side, and it was well-deserved. They were incompetent. Uh, General Nixon was also blamed for, uh, quote, lack of vision, rash impetuosity, overconfidence, and blind optimism. Right, which seems like exactly what you need to succeed in... Well, on the Western Front, yeah. Yeah, British generals who showed lack of vision and overconfidence and blind optimism on the Western Front were being promoted. He was just in the wrong place, I guess. Uh, The oil at Basra was safe. The mouth of the Persian Gulf remained under British control. Uh, The drive on Baghdad failed because of a combination of uh, insufficient resources, British penny-pinching, wishful thinking, and a sort of a blind trust in luck and the ability of the soldiers to pull through. So essentially the same as Gallipoli. British prestige in the Middle East and in India uh, took a severe Mm. beating. Right. Yeah. They they had lost now twice to a non-white army. I mean, it 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 may not be as famous a disaster yeah. as the Russo-Japanese War or the Italian right. invasion of Abyssinia, but, but it's and if you remember how ba- how ma- how badly they depend on the perception of invincibility for their ability to hold on to India specifically, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, in, Indian and Chinese observers uh, definitely heard about this and, and took note. So, so Kut and Al-Amara are both towns along this route of Townshend's It's one horrific. town, Kut Al-Amara. Oh, really? Because I was looking at the map in it. There is out. another place called Amara, yeah. Okay, so Kut is, is the main issue. And Kut is where Townsend made his stand and fall. After his over-optimistic drive on Baghdad, so I'm guessing that Fisk was saying, Blair, you're an idiot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to to over-optimistically drive in there. He got bogged down to... So he's comparing him to Townshend, ultimately. Yeah. Townshend being the case study for this book on the psychology of military incompetence. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's quite a legacy for Townshend, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, consequences... What have have we learned? What have we learned from all these From all these disasters... Yeah, from the disasters on the Western Front to Gallipoli and to Kut. Well, Sir John French blamed his failures on the shell shortage or the shell scandal. And he told anyone who would listen that that was the problem. The government blamed the munitions workers who were drawing high wages and spending the day drinking in pubs. 
So they passed <laughs> legislation very quickly. You'd be amazed how quickly the, the House of Commons could pass a bill and get it through the Lords when they want to. They, they passed a law to restrict the hours when pubs could be open. They had to close after lunch from 3 to 5 p.m. And this was sometimes nicknamed Holy Hour. And I experienced those restrictions uh, when I was in in Britain in the 80s because this law lasted until 1988. Uh, Lord so, North. And, but, but the commanders were napping too. Oh my gosh. This, yeah, we're just, you know, spreading the blame. Wasn't us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lord Northcliffe used his newspapers to place the blame for the shell shortage on Kitchener. Now, while this was mostly true, uh, his allegations were unpopular. Now, the Dardanelles disaster and the failure at Coote together brought down the government. Admiral Fisher resigned. Asquith had to form a new coalition, this time with the Conservatives. One of their conditions was that Churchill had to be out. So Churchill was was dropped from the Admiralty and from the Cabinet. And he spent the next 20 years plus... in the political wilderness, as they say? That's it, in the wilderness. Kitchener's powers were reduced, and Lloyd George became Minister of Munitions. They decided that British prestige in the East had to be restored. By the end of the war, there were 600,000 British and Allied troops in Mesopotamia. 500,000 more in Palestine. And another 500,000 at Salonika. And again, are these mostly Indian? Probably, right? Well, they're described as Allied troops. So Salonika, you had British, French, I believe some Italians and Serbs. Uh, The troops in Palestine and Mesopotamia, yeah, largely Indian. But if you add it up, isn't that 1.6 million men? That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the guys at Salonika achieved little, if anything. General French was uh, recalled. The, The story here is funny. So he had uh, two corps commanders and, and was getting more as the troop number numbers of troops rose. But his chief subordinate was uh, Douglas Haig. French was recalled mostly because Haig wrote mul- multiple letters complaining about him to the king. Haig and uh, the king were friends, but... <laughs> But even the monarch thought that Haig's letters were kind of like a schoolboy peaching on, on Yeah, another. it doesn't necessarily reflect all that well on, on you to do that, right? No, 
no. But French was uh, especially. It's it, it seems unsporting in terms of the honor code of the playing fields of Eton, where all of these okay. men were raised. Uh, the the other thing I want to say th- this this whole the whole thing that happened to the government as a result of these disasters, I think. You could say that it's a sign of how disastrous they were, but I also think it's a sign of how resilient the British system is, that they have this ability to change some of these ministers and keep going, as opposed to having anybody's actual head role, for example, or having an actual revolution. It's a it's a very oppressive system where they can rotate people out and keep the system chugging along more or less as is you mean parliamentary democracy yeah i guess that's what i mean yeah sure sure it's very forgiving they call it it responsible government so the minister's responsible gets sacked but the government just keeps ticking along yeah so with general french gone haig was promoted to uh commander of british forces on the western front and I mentioned before Kitchener getting, you know, basically pushed out and, and replaced by Robertson. Haig and Robertson struck up a partnership where they supported each other uh, pretty continuously and wrote more peachy letters and leaked information to the press and all that sort of thing. Uh, the French commander, General Joffre, continued to insist that one more offensive would do the trick. Well, the French lost hundreds of thousands of men for gains that could be measured in yards. And the spirit of the French army, already weakened by the disasters of 1914, was just, you know, worn down even further. And for whatever reason... It wasn't Joffre, but it was French politicians who took the blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, Delcasse resigned, and René Viviani's government fell. Now, this is nothing new for France, right? Their governments change almost yearly. Yeah. But in wartime, it, it's usually different. Anyway, another unsteady coalition was formed under Aristide Briand, uh, but these new deputies wanted to be more involved. Uh, they visited the front, they cross-examined generals, and apparently they growled at Joffre and his pretensions. He claimed that only he could keep the British in the line. So the French believed that keeping Joffre in command would please the British. Meanwhile, the British believed that supporting Joffre would please the French. (laughs) So that's how Joffre kept his job for now. On the German side, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were criticizing everything that Falkenhayn did. And they blamed him whenever things went wrong. They were finally successful at it, just as Haig had been. Uh, Falkenhayn was demoted in August of 1916, and replaced as chief of staff by Hindenburg, who was a a symbol of victory to the German people. Meanwhile, Ludendorff was running the show from behind Hindenburg. German war aims uh, changed. 
Now, before this, they would have considered a compromise peace. But now they wanted to keep some, if not all, of their territorial gains. Old Franz Joseph, the Austrian emperor, died. Uh, his successor, Karl, immediately took charge of the army and dismissed Konrad von Hotzendorf. But again, that had to wait until 1916. The Russians established a new defensive line 300 miles further east. It, it actually helped to shorten their supply chain. I mean, their supplies were still inadequate. They just didn't have as far to travel. The Russians had their own shell scandal, plus a rifle scandal. In some regiments, you know, a third of the men didn't have a rifle. Uh, they upped their production, I think, to something like 10,000 a month. But that's not going to do it. That's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, because they have millions of men. So even yeah. to get a million rifles, that's 10 months. It's almost a year. Yeah. Now, the French and British agreed on one thing. Russia could not be allowed to drop out of the war. So they sent tons of supplies, uh, first to Salonika. And then when that route was closed by the fall of Serbia, they started shipping them to Archangel which is a Russian port on the White Sea, which is iced over six months of the year. So precious supplies were dumped at subsidiary Russian ports on the coast of Murmansk, where they often stayed for the duration of the war because of the poor state of repair of the railways and a shortage of rolling stock. Supplies were also purchased in the U.S. and shipped to Vladivostok, Russia's port on the Pacific. Now, that's only 3,500 miles from oh. or more. So that's that's a problem. That's a new problem. It's not a solution. It's a new problem. <laughs> it's a new problem. Mm. So... You can imagine how far they had to travel. The supplies had to travel by train. So apparently trains broke down in the middle of the steps and were left on remote sidings or even just pushed off the tracks, you know, completely jettisoned uh, to be eventually pillaged by nomads and bandits. Wow. War now, logistics. Russian logistics is really yeah. something. Now, even if all of those supplies had arrived the Russians would still have been short. According to AJP Taylor, the spirit of the Russian army actually improved a little. Now they had something concrete to fight for, you know, to liberate yeah. Russian territory. But Alan Clark uh, disagrees. He says that defeatism was spreading. There were riots in Moscow troops had to be sent to suppress them by force. A mob in Red Square insulted the royal family, demanded that the empress be incarcerated in a convent, Nicholas deposed, and the crown transferred to Grand Duke Nicholas. And you know what? They had a point. <laughs> that, might have, that might have actually helped. Uh, then Tsar Nicholas made a terrible blunder. 
he dismissed his uncle, Grand Duke Nicholas, and took command of the army himself. Now, never mind his own incompetence. He had no military knowledge. He had no plan. He just went to the front in person to cheer up the troops. But when he left the capital and took charge, he got rid of the insulation between himself and the blame for further Russian defeats or failures. Yeah, I've read that in other sources on the eastern side of World War One. Yeah, exactly so point. now you can't scapegoat anybody because you're in charge directly. And the second reason this was a terrible, terrible mistake, he left his wife, Empress Alexandra, in charge back in St. Petersburg. And that meant Rasputin. We'll probably cover this thoroughly in a later episode. We will. Well, great stories, but also pretty key stories in determining what happened later. So the disasters of 1915 led Tsar Nicholas to make further disastrous disastrous decision. So, yeah, again, seems like there's lots of disasters and lots of different allies and Russia is the one that pays the biggest price in terms of the regime being replaced in a revolution. Thank you.